Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. We're recording live today at the Edmonton Real Estate Forum as part of our real estate series. Our guest today is a gentleman named Rohit Gupta part of Rohit group of companies. And I'll let him list the different groups of companies. Rohit, I'm just going to jump right into it. I was going to tell a story about how I know Rohit and the relationship, but I'll just say Rohit and I have, have, have a familiarity. So it makes it more fun to have these guests. So I'm not meandering through exploring Rohit's background. Adam is though. So this is, yeah. it'll, it'll be new to Adam, not new to me. But Rohit, why don't we just jump right into it? First of all, thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Rohit's got a bright orange Oilers hat on. It is May 18th. We'll do this because we are going to jump into interest rates at some point. So it's May 18th. Tonight is the first game of the Battle of Alberta. By the time you're listening to this, everybody will know what, what happened. But for us right now, it's a very exciting time in the hockey world of Alberta. Welcome, Rohit. Well, thanks, uh, Aaron and Adam. One of the things I learned last night in the pre-party for tonight was don't buy a Torontonian a drink. So they won't show up for the second round. Right. <laughs> so, so that's for your Toronto fans. Our signature move. Right? So, that was not a nice joke. Bro, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, Rowith Group Companies, just uh, just kind of give you a background. We have a few different divisions. So, we have Rowith Land, which is our land development business that operates in Calgary and Edmonton. We have Rowith Communities, which is our home building business and our condo business, which operates in Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina and is opening shop in Ottawa also. And then we have a Rowith Commercial Division, which is our retail office, residential rentals that we warehouse in our portfolio. And that's operating in Edmonton and Calgary right now. And then we have a prop tech arm called uh, BuildBase, just recently named BuildBase when we had to go out and start talking to investors potentially. And so, so that's just come together. But it's a previous name. Some people may have heard it as Hobo, the Home Building Operating System. And so we just thought it was a little bit apropos to call it Hobo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good working title. Yes, I yes. see why uh, ultimately you're yeah. shifting. For skunk works, it works in this yeah. company. So. Yeah. Rohit, tell us how you ended up getting into real estate in the first place. Like, just tell us the story because it's a great trajectory, what you and your family have done over the last generation. Yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Aaron. So I'm a silver spoon situation. Uh, I kind of fell into it because uh, uh, I was named after the company, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, the company came first. <laughs> I think my dad found it easier to na- rename me than it was to rename the company. He wouldn't, he wouldn't forget your name, right? <laughs> yeah, it was free child labor. But uh, our family started the enterprise in 86. Uh, my dad was living in uh, Libya. We were, as a family, sorry, living in Libya. And he was buying real estate assets here in Edmonton. Uh, he'd, we'd lived here previously in Edmonton. I was born here. And he was buying apartment buildings during the 80s. And in 89, we moved back to Edmonton and we got into construction as a family enterprise. We partnered with Greg Christensen from Christensen Development. And it was a great partnership. And from there, we got into development activities. I joined the firm in 2002. I was a lost soul. I think it was in summer of 2000, early 2003, I ended up moving to Amsterdam for a bit to figure out life when dad asked me for a commitment to the business. Uh, prior to that, I was a computer engineer and hopefully uh, going to do my master's in physics. But uh, Kind of like Aaron, I drank a little too much uh, at times. <laughs> so, what do you say? <laughs> Don't throw me under the bus. <laughs> and had a little too much fun in university. So, honestly, it was a situation where I couldn't figure out where I wanted to go in 2002, and uh, decided to help my parents. And uh, 
I ended up joining the business and uh, I figured out they, I, they had only one email address, one server. I mean, one computer with internet access for a firm of 16 people. And I was a computer engineer. So I thought, hey, I can milk this. And so I started off by wanting to sell software to my father and my mother uh, as they were running their business. And two months into the job of where my dad commissioned, I said, okay, I'll give you a contract. Uh, go ahead. Uh, you underpriced me about 20% lower than what salaries for <laughs> computer engineers were at the time. Uh, Did you but, know that at the time or just in retrospect, do you realize? No, no, I knew, that, got, at, I knew okay. that at the time. Uh, <laughs> a family discount. <laughs> right? yeah. Well, you got to remember April 20, 2002 is when I would have graduated. And that's right after the tech bust. So True. I was a... Uh, he was taking actually, advantage of a soft labor market. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like a good father should. And, <laughs> right. And so we uh, started in and uh, it was a journey that I realized if I developed out the software for him, it would have been about a, a million dollar to $2 million ticket for him at that time. And it would have been probably a terrible product, but there was a much cheaper solution out there. Uh, Constellation Software with their new star product was out there in the marketplace. So I brought that off the shelf instead and converted myself into a consultant that implemented software for the family. And so my father was and my mother were really surprised at how enterprising I was within the organization and trying to wheel and deal. And that converted into one contract after another contract with them for some other part of the business. When I was trying to figure out my existence, I had some mental health issues that my parents really helped me out with early in my career. And I struck a deal with them. You helped me out for six months, got me back on the road. You know what? You got two years of my life. And uh, like Mario Kart, got a, one year into the contract. And I said, I'll give you another two years because I like what I'm doing. And I think I'll leave the company by the time I'm 30. By the time I was 27, I said, okay, let's extend it to 40. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and here I'm at 42. I think they've got me stuck. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think you're pot committed. <laughs> right. yeah. I'm like, really? The, the bloody <laughs> company's named after you, for heaven's sakes. Yeah, right. You so, can't go anywhere. So. Your dad was just laughing every time you were doing that. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's not going anywhere. Right. So. Did you uh, travel back to, to Amsterdam to think about life before every time you wanted to extend your uh, stay? As I, like, I, know, I like this concept. Right. <laughs> so my wife, every time I got a big decision to make, I'm headed over to Europe. <laughs> so, yeah, you know what? It, it wasn't Amsterdam. It was for me, it was ironic. When we were kids, my sister was the one who was supposed to work in the company long-term and I was supposed to travel the world. I did all sorts of labor jobs. I've dug uh, weeping tile, I've uh, framed decks and stuff like that. Uh, I got all the dirty labor jobs. I remember middle of the night in Fort Mac, the rain was pouring on one of our modular houses and the, the one of the uh, bases uh, kicked out and the house fell onto a, a fire hydrant and uh, in the middle of the night, we were trying to figure out how to prop it up and prevent the leak of the fire hydrant. And uh, so I've done, I've done all sorts of labor jobs. So there's a, an empathy, but my desire was to be in R&D and uh, the Silicon Valley effectively. But my sister and I reversed roles. She traveled the world, uh, lived in Dubai, Stockholm, and other parts of the world. And uh, I ended up working for dad. <laughs> Not that it's bad. It's worked out really great. Yeah, but, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned wheeling and dealing and then they saw that early. You've kind of taken that to a whole new level mm-hmm. now. Maybe transition a little bit into just what you've done, you know, obviously with the support of your father. When did you kind of take the reins? Like, when did you start becoming the main decision maker? And what have you done with that since? I would say it's a really a team effort. We're a unique firm in the sense that I would compare Alberta to Texas. It's a hyper competitive market. And so you have to be really intelligent to be able to survive. Inflation isn't what drives your creative growth and your returns. It's actually manufacturing processes in the home building business or commercial, whatever it is. You have to add value all every step of the way. And so, if anything, ignoring the financials, our talent has been really recruiting talent. 
whether it's on the development side, whether it's on the construction side, or whether it's on the finance side of the business. And so that's been our strategy. We're a shop built of engineers and accountants and finance and uh, Red Seal carpenters uh, throughout the organization in different spaces. And that's what's driven the growth. So when I joined the business, we were building about 150 homes a year. Our top like single family homes. Single family and duplexes. We were active adult builders. So we used to build active adult communities. And our top line at that time was about $20 million. And our balance sheet was about $30 million. We're now at three-quarter billion dollars of AUM for the business over the last 20 or so years. And rapid growth. And we've gone out of just uh, pure home building and owning one industrial building to about 1,800 acres of land around Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, we're generating about 1.1 million square feet of construction a year on an annualized basis. So, so how long to build out all the acreage? What's the math on the pipeline? Oh, you know what? If we have the last two quarters going on that we have in Alberta, we'll be out of it in about uh, 12 years. Okay. About 13 years, we'll be out. And so we're actually trying to figure out how to restock our supply. and Land supply, you mean? Land supply and starting to rebuild that stock. And so we're being pretty aggressive right now in the marketplace, both in Calgary and Edmonton. And if you've got free land in Ottawa, I'm happy to take that too. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, now that you say that, we'll talk after the recording's over. I, I actually uh, do. So, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. You mentioned talent being a real key part of success. Are you struggling in the current market to find people? It seems to be a common feedback we're getting. So the first decade between 2000 and 2010, uh, or 2014, sorry, 2002 to 2014 of my career, 50% of our enterprise was up in Fort Mac. We built out 7% of the housing stock in that market. And you knew how to beg in any which way to get people to show up and recruit in creative ways. So I, I think, yeah, it is a more competitive labor market that we find today. But we've been so used to riding the boom-bust bull that exists in Alberta. It's like, sure, we're going through this and this too shall pass and we'll adjust. And so I don't worry about it. It is what it is. And what's interesting for us as an organization is when we look at uh, talent that's coming in, young talent, so much of our social infrastructure has changed. A lot of us don't go to church. We don't take our kids to church. We don't join bowling leagues or hockey leagues and so forth. It appears to me that kids or new employees that are coming through are starting to use the corporation as their vehicle to get their socialization and some of those value sets to be driven down to them. And so the dialogue for us internally to the organization with our employees is changing quite a bit where they're looking for us to take more of a social justice warrior approach or solve some of these issues. And so that's the challenge for navigating as an organization, but we continue to evolve through that. Yeah, interesting shift that you're not just providing employment and income, that you need to kind of build, uh, I guess, community around it, right? Yeah. How many staff in the total group of companies? We have about 200 people throughout the team, and it's spread out across Canada. The majority of our staff is set up in Edmonton. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the head office, and then you've got sort of satellite divisions depending on where your investments are? Yeah. So what's really creative about our shop is my background in computer engineering, uh, my right-hand guy, Adil Cody, and his background in electronics engineering. We spent a lot on IT infrastructure. And as such, we are what uh, a lot of the office guys hate. We have a headquarters in Edmonton. And then we set up our offices in Calgary and Regina and Saskatoon and Ottawa are set out of basements uh, of our show homes or they're set up in somebody's house and they're running their operations from there. And everything's mobile. We're 95% digital in our, our business. We just want First National to allow us to sign everything with DocuSign. Yeah. So we can, <laughs> we can get away from wet signatures yeah. and land titles. <laughs> so, yeah. So hey, Talk to the Alberta government about that. That's not, that's not us. <laughs> yeah. right. That's been the major transition for us. So we have really remote mobile staff 
structure, the way we've been set up, and uh, communication structures are really, really strong within the organization. And what's different about us than most peer sets that originate out of the home building, they have segmented products where their construction team is for single family, they have a construction team for apartments, and they have a separate construction team for commercial. Our construction team is fluid, so we're more of a EPC-style corporation where you just plug into a resource, and then that team will give you the resource you need to develop your project out. And we're constantly rolling from project to project, different personnel. So let's talk about that. What kind of projects are you working on right now? So I'm going to ignore the land development projects, and I'm going to ignore the suburban housing projects. But in the multifamily and uh, commercial and infrastructure side of it, so on the multifamily side, we've been working on University District with the UFC. We're working with Curry Barracks with Canada Lands, just condo projects uh, that are partially amenitized. We like to compare it to uh, select service hotels. And uh, You said UFC, is that student housing or is it a condo? It's going to be a condo development that we're doing over there with the UFC. They've got rental projects they've got with other developers that they're bringing into that marketplace. We're focused on the for sale market there with Canada Lands. It's a for sale market. Down here in Edmonton, we're working on the gentrification of east side of downtown Edmonton, uh, right beside the Commonwealth Stadium uh, with our Stadium Yards project. But probably the most interesting project that's totally getting me jacked is that we're working on a platform to relook at healthcare provision or substructures for the province of Alberta. So we've partnered with Covenant Health, and we're developing out a 600,000-square-foot facility where we're decanting the Grey Nuns, a hospital that was designed for 25,000 patients a year. How's that decanting process going? So I'll explain <laughs> like, this. So, we'll go, th- like finish. Yeah. go through the project first, and then let's talk about the nuances, because this, <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. really fascinating. Adam and I are gonna, we're going to dive in on this a little yeah. bit. So just tell us the story of what it is. It's 600,000 square feet. What is the ultimate value of the development? And then we'll, we'll talk about the actual nuances. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're developing out 600,000 square feet with the Covenant Health, and we're decanting the Grey Nuns. It's a facility that was designed for 25,000 patients a year and now has 75,000 patients a year. And so the, the total size of the project is about $250 million, ignoring inflation that we've experienced in the last uh, year. Yeah, that budget's going up. Yeah, the budget's going <laughs> up, right? And so I'm like Kelly Rudy, I'll tell you. The team that wins the most, scores the most goals will most likely win. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so, and so there's 600,000 square foot facility you're building. What's the, what's the capacity? You talked about the current facility is built for 25,000, contains 75,000. What are you building? Yeah, so what we're doing is on the site of the 600,000 square feet, roughly, we've got about 150,000 square feet of community health center, 50,000 square feet of medical. We've got another 200-bed senior supportive living structure that we're developing out with them. And we've got 300 units of multifamily that we're working with them on. And so it's an integrated urban wellness village. And the, the dialogue around our table is, uh, let's not be Disneyland, let's be Disney World. Let's try to own all the revenue streams as Covenant Health. So it's a P3 concept that we've been working on with them for over two years. It was our hard pivot when uh, COVID hit that uh, I was like, there's a good chance that we're going to go through our housing crisis in Canada. And uh, we need to figure out how to start working on government contracts. And so we pivoted into this. And so did they tender that and you were just on a part of the bid process? Like how did, how did you get involved? So the irony is about six years ago, one of the board members of Covenant and uh, my father were having coffee and they found out that Covenant had bought a site that we were bidding on and we're counter bidders and uh, they bought the, the site for the building so that they could decant the Grey Nuns and we, we were buying the site to put in residential. Obviously, we knew there was a LRT coming down there. So completely different uses and so they started debating what could you do and so our teams came together and we just talked over a coffee 
and some pasta and said, look, what if you could create an urban wellness village, you could get revenue streams and so forth. So Covenant stepped away for about three years there and came back to market and ran a public RFP. And there was multiple bidders that came onto the table and we were one of them. And as we started walking through with them, what our platform is, we realized that we're one of two or three people that have their own cash, has the ability to work in multiple different asset classes, and is flexible enough to just take on something that's that crazy. Yeah. Uh, as building a hospital, medical retail, seniors, and... Uh, and some apartments so, for, just apartments. For, just for fun. <laughs> right. so then ultimately the product, you're gonna try, I guess you're going to turn part of it over to the government, retain ownership on part of it, or how does that uh, work at the end? So the deal structure, I think, uh, has changed four times on us uh, over the t- last two years. So being flexible has been really keen. Uh, the way we're setting it up right now is Covenant Health will end up owning the hospital, cradle to grave, and uh, they'll own the seniors care facilities, and we're going to be joint venture partners in the residential. But we're the development manager that's helping them crystallize the value out of the asset. And so we're trying to figure out how do we take this prototype and start scaling it across the country. So decanting. How do you decant nuns? Yeah, I want to hear about that. <laughs> okay, so the problem with the, in the healthcare world is… Can't stop operations. You can't stop operations, but there's capital budgets that have to be approved. And those capital budgets have 10-year forecasts. So you're either in the 10-year forecast or you're not. And so Covenant Health did not have the plans in the 10-year forecast with Alberta Health, but they also knew they had a problem. So they started saying, we have a problem. If we build a new hospital, it'll cost us $1,200 a square foot or something of that nature can we take out low-value-add services or low-cost services out of the building and retain the high-cost building services? So Covenant Health actually started the journey on their own over that three-year period that they'd gone dark on us. And what they were doing was they figured out surgical procedures they would retain, but they would take out procedures like mental health or day procedures and so forth that didn't have the same mechanical system requirements. And so they were segregating low-cost items. And uh, we're trying to bring that to market around 600 bucks a square foot is what our target is to develop a facility that is uh, for those those services, for those services. So they've defined them and we're now trying to figure out how do we create revenue generating services for them through that, whether it's seniors or residential rentals. You've got to find it just, you're learning a ton, right? I mean, in this business, you never stop learning, but now all of a sudden you've got this unique asset that you're in the process of developing it's not an apartment building. It's not office. Like I think as you do those, you, you, you get familiar with them. You've got this sort of brand new project to kind of sink your teeth in and learn about all this stuff. How, how are you finding that? It is mind-blowing at how fast and nimble Covenant Health has been as an organization. And it's mind-blowing at how slow they are at the exact same time. So when we compare them to other institutions, we're like, wow, they're moving so fast. And then we, we realize as entrepreneurs, that when we're working with them, we're moving way too fast for them and we have to slow down. So that's actually been uh, really uh, tortoise in the hare situation. And so there's been hard lessons learned for me and some of the team members over the last couple of years as we're going through the journey. But the technical mind bend that's happening here is mind-blowing. It is just mind-blowing. We've had to rethink Z codes. We've had to rethink building codes, how we were operating that. What can we segregate? Like if we take this one function out, out of the community health center and move it into, let's say, the medical retail or the seniors care facility, can we shift building codes? And so that's been a real challenge. One of the other biggest challenges for us has been really working with a government agency to try to say, hey, look, if we can just move the diagnostics 500 meters here, we can make it a revenue generating asset for you. We can lease it out to a third party. 
but the operating team says, nope, it has to be 100 meters away from this specific desk because we have to get reports back and forth and so forth. Or patients have to move. Patients have to move, and we're just like, but you could be a million dollars in the po- pro- <laughs> <laughs> in the positive. So it's been capitalists with yeah, <laughs> so, pragmatist. So, I guess. Well, have you ever spent? Any, have you spent any time in a hospital? Like those things. That it is a complicated yeah. system, like yeah. operating system. Yeah, like just the way that you got you know whatever it is, thirty different services. And I'm going to pretend to be able to you know know what they are. You got 30 different services on 20 different floors and they've all got to work interchangeably to some degree, but all also work in isolation to some degree. Like it's super complicated. Yeah. So you know what? We had to take out one of our best procurement people. We had to take out our best design team. Uh, we had to, uh, our planner, Russ Doc, who really does all the creative thinking in our shop, take three or four people out of our shop and just isolate them for this project. And it's kind of like a skunk works or a startup s- structure because if we hit it, it can really blow this company up and just, we can go. So you could replicate it. Replicate it repeatedly, work with different agencies across the country. And we've got a financial model that effectively gives us a P3 structure that we can just come into a new product. And if it doesn't, well, we spent two years planning and another five years building (laughs) and built it once. And that's good. That was a great experiment. Next one. And Rohit will be 50 by the time (laughs) we finish. Right. And then I might go to Amsterdam again. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely a lot more complicated than delivering a base industrial building to a tenant. As a one-off, does the development of this skill set, you know, make sense? Or do you really have to try and do the multiple locations to kind of uh, make it worthwhile expanding your, your knowledge? And, and learning. Yeah, like yeah. the learning curve has got to be super steep. And so you got, if you're going to get up that curve, it's not worth it just to do it once. Yeah, you, you know, I, I liken it to being like an entrepreneur. It never makes sense to own your own business unless you're a really bad employee. Right. (laughs) And so I would say this is the same situation here where if you think from a rational perspective and making money perspective, it is a terrible investment of time and capital. But this is the… But it's fun. But it's fun. Like, like, honestly, it's just, I just want to do this. Like, I want to be Bain that goes in and says, you know, how we think about hospitals, I want to break its back. How we deliver hospitals, how we deliver healthcare. And what if we come up with a great model? What's the creative value? So when people in the private sector or a private business like ours, it re- I really struggle with coming up with an ESG plan uh, that's formulaic and, and can work and reporting. This is our ESG. This is our donation. This is our, uh, Russ and I Your sat back. Contribution. Contribution back to society and saying, if we solve something, this is awesome. Because you've effectively prevented that discussion of a two-tier health system. You've prevented all that. All we're doing is we're working on delivery of healthcare infrastructure. And we're trying to minimize the public sector being on, or the, uh, on the teats of uh, government, always trying to get funding. They're trying to figure out creative models of revenue generation. And so for us, this is Bain trying to break uh, Batman's back, uh, for better lack of words. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, once you have this skill set, you're now participating in a much less crowded marketplace. You know, there's a lot of people out there that can, to go back to the example of uh, a bare industrial building, a lot of people can put that together. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Look, again, we're, we're in Texas here. Right. And if anybody's ever studied the housing market in Houston or Dallas, or it is a tough, tough market. You gain volume there, but you get your profits in other markets. This is a very competitive market. This, this effectively becomes a closed market for us. There's maybe a, a handful of people across the country that could be competitive from a thinking of how to the delivery model, but then the technical expertise and the detail we get involved in, because we're an engineering centric shop allows us to solve problems from a functional perspective and an operating platform perspective. 
a really cool project. I'm excited to just kind of hear how it progresses and how many more times it changes before you yeah. start putting, you know, shovels in the ground. And well, so, so Aaron, if you, you could help me, just make sure you're lending me money at 2% right now. <laughs> wow. And, and I, I can solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. It will not change yeah. on you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, come to us for the apartments. I don't know about 2%, but I'll definitely help you with the apartment financing. And the time machine could probably <laughs> yeah. do it. Yeah. 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 The financing of that would be a really interesting conversation too, because I guess you could get traditional financing for the seniors living and the apartments, but then the hospital, you have to go through a different channel, right? It's interesting. So we're working with Covenant Health because they're a government agency. It is government debt. They're sort of getting funding through ATB, the Alberta Treasury Board. And even for their seniors living, because it's a social housing good and supportive living, that they're, they're actually going to get government funding for that too, right? And the market side of it, which is the for rental product, is where we're, we're going to go back out to uh, your group. And you guys are going to make sure it's super cheap. Yeah. All right. But what, what, what's interesting is because we're segregating the uses, but we're making the project right on top of one site, we're actually trying to see if we can create affordable seniors housing using market rental product. So we're, we've got all the kitchens and everything in the supportive living building, but can we provide private home care a la carte to the rental building right next door? That's interesting. Right. And so instead of building to a, a seniors housing building code, we're actually building to apartment building building code with support with support right across, and, and if you think about it from a community perspective, and this is what we specialize in, is we think about communities. We think about how do we make living better for people everywhere. And so, if you're a husband and wife team, somebody suffers from dementia, has to go into supportive living. You're not going into two separate regions. You're not stuck in your house. You're actually able to walk across the street and see your husband or wife in dementia care. But the second part of it that really matters is we want to make sure it's affordable. So we're able to, we forecast, and we haven't proven it out. We'll see how it, proof is going to be in the pudding. But we forecast that we can cut cost of effective private home care by 20% or living in a amenitized seniors space by 20%. So if we look at seniors today, and I'm not a seniors guy, but we assume that it, it serves really the top 5% of the wealth bracket. What if we could expand that market to the top 20% of the wealth bracket? So now you've got a much larger market, different segments. The resiliency of the product from a financial perspective will be higher. And you're creating a healthcare facility, right? So yeah. it's a health no, no, village. It's, it's a, it's, and you called it a village, and, and that really is, sounds like what it is. Moving next or over to some of the others. So you've got Stadium Yards. How is that going? And I'm asking more of an, uh, you know, just, you know, costs are going up. Everything seems to be going in the wrong direction. All the headwinds. And you're, I don't know, how far are you along in that development? And just maybe just talk about that development yeah, yeah. in general. So the development, it's a three-phase development on the east side of downtown where phase one is completed. We're just in stabilization period. So is this uh, is a rental? It's a residential yeah. rental. Yeah. Pr- asset. Proudly financed by First National, I will add. Yeah. Adam, really? <laughs> you didn't read the file? Did you not read the briefing notes before you showed up? So no, but uh, it's been a great journey. With the city of Edmonton, uh, it was part of a gentrification process that the city's going through. They opened up a landlocked area of the city along was, the was river. Was that the incentive to get you to build a give access to the land? Or? Well, so it was a, a land that was held by Brookfield. But one of the challenges was the city hadn't committed to building the LRT out. And so when we were buying the land from Brookfield, one of the discussions we had at the city is like, you guys got to move forward with the station improvements. And so the city injected about $40 million to improve the safety of the LRT station. And subsequently, we came in, we started adding amenities. And our thesis was, and this is pre-COVID, I have to preface this, our thesis was that Alberta is going to struggle for a while 
with oil, and we struggled to see how oil would go above 60 bucks a barrel. And Boy, were you wrong. I was yeah. wrong. I was really right when it was negative. Yeah. <laughs> so I was really right when it was negative. But it would say, like, we were wrong, but we, we struggled. We thought we need a recession-proof asset. And so we built a luxury standard multifamily building in the east end of downtown that's in a wood product. And we were competing directly with the concrete structures that were going right around the ice district area. And it's had a great reception. Our strategy was to be homey modern. And I'm not trying to be a jerk about this, but if you assume that ice district dealt with a FOMO, a pretentious attitude, we wanted to create an unpretentious attitude and a homey modern strategy. It's, it's the anti-ice district. It's so. the anti-ice district. It's the anti-downtown Toronto, anti-downtown Vancouver. Wait, what are you saying? <laughs> right? No, He's no. calling you pretentious. <laughs> <or not. laughs> no, no, but like, if you look at the developments, they're going luxury. And we wanted to make sure we were like the Lexus, right? And you're not going to be super bragging about it, but you always felt good. The coffee you drink is the same one as your lawyer drinks downtown, but you're the articling student. You want to be value-based. And so... That was the whole premise of what we did there. We've gotten really strong community feedback. We've had some uh, partners that walk through the buildings and they've been pleasantly surprised at the build quality and uh, the thoughtfulness we've introduced throughout the product. We even introduced a music room. This was uh, something we thought would, be, would speak to people who lose something that they love. I was a DJ back in the day and my parents hated my music. So did my friends. But that's a, <laughs> right. But you lose that skill. And so why not hold on to it in your first early parts of your transition as an individual? So those are things that we're trying to be thoughtful about. And so phase one's being delivered. And where are you with the rest of it? Phase two, we're hoping to break ground in June of uh, next year, 2023. And phase three will happen uh, because there's going to be about 40,000 Ontarians that are going to show up next year. Yeah. And uh, we'll start that right concurrently. <laughs> so honestly, we're, we want phase two to start next year. And we want phase three to start ideally in 2024. For ourselves. Any reservations about the construction market right now for, for phase two launch? Look, we're Albertans. We're, we're used to riding bulls, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so let's, uh, let's giddy up uh, <laughs> right now. So I, I would say, look. We're going to make that the quote for this episode. <laughs> right. that's, that's it right there. Right. We're <laughs> Albertans giddy up. We ride bulls. Yeah. <laughs> so look, uh, this too shall pass, right? We went through this in the 80s. We'll adjust as a market. Our strategy has been really to keep the bets small and cycle fast. As a developer, we're trying to figure out how do we get in and out of an asset within two years so we're not carrying too much tail risk. The longer the tail is, the more spreads you guys are baking in from as lenders. And so the underwriting becomes significantly more challenged as, as we start getting to three, four, five-year developments. And the larger the development, the more conservative uh, we're forcing our banking partners to be. So our approach has been, can we ideally have 80% of our portfolio liquidated or start construction or completion of construction of 80% of our portfolio in a year and ideally 90% within two years. And then the last 10% is squeezing out thereafter. And so that's been a huge part of our strategy to manage inflation. Having been worked in Fort Murray and through the boom times, a couple of real heavy cycles through the 2000s, early 2010s, the worst strategy would be to report more. It's actually more productive to get out there and start solving the problem, chasing the drywaller down, chasing the form worker down and get them to work for you. And so we're lucky and we're blessed. We don't have institutional partners in these developments that we're in right now. So we're self-reporting to a board and we've tried to make sure that we keep the touch points the same as they were previously, but we're increasing the contingency in our budgets and we're just accepting it. The next big one we're forecasting will be nails. We'll be, we may be having to hammer out nails out of a 
piece of formwork and start reusing them. And so like this summer, so it's literally an air bombing that's happening from a construction perspective every day, every week. It's a new problem that's coming up and we don't foresee that problem disappearing for at least another 18 months. It'll slow down, but problems going to continue to come. So our strategy on around construction, keep projects shorter, keep them smaller, try to compartmentalize them so you're not as exposed to the inflationary pressures that are going to come up. Such a great answer. Yeah. <laughs> on the leasing on phase one, that would have taken place, I guess, through part of the more serious part of COVID. How was leasing velocity? How were rental rates? Did you have to do incentives at any point? Or how did that process go? So have you ever done rock climbing, uh, Adam? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So just imagine I was at the top of the, the wall and I was just hanging, right? Like that's how it felt sometimes <laughs> <laughs> when we're starting the lease up cycle. So we commissioned the project in August of 2019. And we delivered the first building in January 1st, 2021. I think that was Delta wave. Yeah. We were in, or no, that's the second wave that we're coming through. That was scary because we're sucking slough water at that time. And then March, it took off. And one of the strategies we took was counter to a, a, most of our competitive set is we opened the amenity space. My wife being a surgeon uh, has given me enough reports to read through on COVID that my eyes have been cross-eyed a few times. <laughs> and so we realized that surfaces aren't the issue. It's airborne issues. And so we actually fought the system and uh, it went, opened up uh, amenity spaces. And that was one of the things we found. A lot of tenants were vacating amenitized buildings because the property managers weren't being flexible, weren't trying to be creative and figure out how to deliver on the promise that they lease the tenants up to. So that got us through building one. And then supply chain issues really hit us in building two uh, that we were delivering. So what was supposed to be delivered in August of 21 was delivered in end of November of 21. So that's a, that's a long time to hang off that rock climbing yeah, wall. Yeah, <laughs> so I really appreciate COVID ended on March 1st here in Alberta. Honestly, we had to transition through that and it's been phenomenal, 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 phenomenal reception we've gotten from the community. And we're 70% occupied, 75% stabilized. I mean, leased up. We feel by the end of summer, we'll be fully leased up on a 250 unit complex in a market that was really struggling during COVID, especially the downtown market. We, uh, we've only got a couple minutes left. We've got these, the session has ended into lunch. So it's going to get really noisy out here, but we'll, uh, we'll power through. Before we kind of wrap up, Rohit, I, I want to talk about the prop tech company, Hobo, yeah. or I, you, know, you can tell me what the, I forget what the- Build what base. Is, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Cause I mean, that's kind of close to you and true to you, I guess, because you've got the computer yeah. engineering background and I'm, I'm not surprised this is where you wanted to go too. Talk about the incentives, talk about what it is, talk about how you're leveraging it from your real estate perspective and just why you're doing it. Yeah, the way that came about was we were trying to solve issues that we had with our existing software and the way our business was expanding. We wanted to, we knew that Alberta is going to continue to struggle. Again, the genesis of this was 2016, 2017, and we had to move to a paperless environment. Uh, so that's when our journey started. And we started with Excel sheets solving the problem and we slowly backed into the solution of a content management system. And effectively, uh, the, the history or the effect of that product has been, we've gone from building 400 homes a year to 1,000 units a year, while our staff complement has increased 20%. And we've got into hospitals and we're getting into rental products. So a lot of our growth has been in these ancillary components. So it's helped us bend our cost curve. And our now strategies we're going to market is we're trying to release the IP that we've developed as a home builder and we solved certain things. We stole from Uber the concept of signaling. 
you can't uh, flagging a taxi is really hard. But what if I keep telling you how far the taxi is away? It uh, reduces your anxiety. So we use that in our scheduling side of the product. We ended up partnering with Dynamics 365, uh, Microsoft product. And so that allows them to own the AI tool that we need on the back end. We've consolidated the information that lawyers and mortgage brokers and customers and our own internal team use. So uh, like it's like your university one card that you may have had that gave uh, all the profs all the information about you, but all the registers, how to collect all the cash off you. Uh, same type of concept, <laughs> right? So we've consolidated a product and we're now starting commercialization mode in the last month or so. And we're starting to talk to big builders and small builders alike. And ideally, we have about 10 to 20,000 homes a year on our platform within five years. And I would not be surprised if in a decade, the build-based product is a, a bigger business than our existing Roweth Group company. Are the trades going to use it as well? Like, how does that, who's the, you got the, the developer using it. Are they then requiring the trades to log timeframes, that kind of thing? Like, how, does, no. how does it work? So the way the software works is, so one of the biggest challenges in the industry is we're disorganized as home builders. So all we did was organize and we create a content management system and our vendors log into it and they can upload their invoices. They get paid automatically. They can track that. Look, it's not sitting on Rohit's desk. It's actually, in fact, sitting on Aaron's desk. So why don't you go and harass Aaron for why he hasn't approved the <laughs> PO or the invoice and the work order flow. So, so we solved a workflow issue also. The opportunity that this platform creates, and which is what it is, it's an operating system we're creating for the home builder, is we can create a fintech solution that allows us to factor receivables for trades using the covenant of the builder. It allows us to enter the new home MLS system. So if you think about home builders, we're terrible at providing the information to a realtor to how to sell a house because we're focused on building the house. So we organize the data in a way that the realtor can work on it. It also allows for online mortgage brokers to start looking at how do they attach themselves to the product? How can they bid on the customer at the front end? So we have an online sales engine now too. So all our sales contracts are done off the phone or an iPad. So we're trying to take that product out to market. Are you going to incorporate blockchain into this? Because this sounds like something where it would be an applicable use. And Aaron, I've been waiting for real estate to jump on board. So I, I actually was thinking about this, Adam. I was going to rename the company Roweth Blockchain AI Group. And uh, so I was hoping to just pump my valuation that way. <laughs> right? so, I'll buy in right now. Right, right? <laughs> sounds smart. But I might go crypto Rohit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a new coin that I'm releasing. But no, honestly, we're not using blockchain. It's not a, sol a solution we need to provide. In okay. here, we're literally an administrative function and we're bending the SGNA cross curve of a home builder. And so if you think about it, for big builders in suburban markets like uh, Toronto or so forth, their suburban builders are massive. But what about the infill builder? How do they create infrastructure that can be competitive? How do you move forward with that? Our hope is that we're collecting enough data that we can actually standardize the reporting packages back to the banks and actually lower the cost for builders because banks have more transparency, consistency. They have a lens into how costs are managed. So, but if you guys want to check out one of the products uh, right there that we have that's attached to BuildBase, download the MyRoith app. It's a white label product that we're uh, creating for uh, the new home sales side of it. And it, it'll just allow, give you access to all our inventory. We have one single truth that exists and everything, all the data goes through BuildBase. Rohit, I'm sure that you know we're out of time. And if uh, listeners can't tell, the uh, growing noise behind us is also an indication that we should uh, wrap it up. But uh, thanks so much for your time today. Go Oilers. And uh, look forward to seeing you uh, sometime soon. I just noticed your hat signed by McDavid. Yeah, yeah it was a gift today, this morning I got. Uh, so I was a Toronto fan. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Informa, of course, for putting this all together. It's been a fantastic event. Thanks to First National Empowering the Podcast. And most of all, thanks to our guest, Rohit. Thank you. Thanks, Rohit. Appreciate Rohit. guys. Pleasure. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, after show where Aaron and I discuss the conversation that just took place. Rohit's a character. I've always liked talking to him. I know that you know him even better than I do, but uh, you know, I have connected with him numerous times in Alberta in the past and you know, always enjoyed his company. But the interview was great. I mean, just the concept of mass mixed use, you know, not mixed use being ground floor retail with some sort of residential above, but truly doing a toss salad of various real estate uses into single projects. The logistics and valuations and executions got to be mind-boggling. But as he said there, complicate is good. And if you can solve it, you can make some money. So uh, yeah, I found that aspect of the interview really interesting. Well, he's infectious, right? I mean, he's gone now, but I know he'll be listening to this when we release it. And there's like this boyish enthusiasm he's got for trying to pro- solve these problems. Like you can just hear the excitement, the giddiness, right? Do something, something fun and different, which I really appreciate. I'd enjoy it every time that I interact with him. And yeah, I mean, what a crazy project. And then he said, it, fortunately, he understood this is not a one-off thing. If they can solve the quagmire of that sort of major development, which includes obviously sort of provincial infrastructure, you know, hospitals and things, all sorts of other stuff, it is something that he can replicate. So then, of course, there is a profitability-driven perspective even though right now there's a lot of heavy lifting to it, which of course I think is part of the fun too. Because once you figure out how to do it all, replicate it, it's not nearly as exciting, I suspect. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, for sure, the group of companies he's got has solved simple real estate a long time ago. If you're just pumping out single asset class stuff on a greenfield sites, you know, that's pretty straightforward. You know, at some point you want uh, more challenge and apparently he wants a lot of challenge. But yeah, the enthusiasm is infectious is a good word. Doesn't have the grizzled veteran of real estate vibe at all, even though he has been, you know, at it for quite a long time. He's he's carried the enthusiasm. I'm sure a young Aaron Cameron sprang into First National with, uh, you know, a long time ago. Yeah, it got <laughs> beaten out of me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, no. If you did, Rohit will shake your hand. So if you run across him, he stands out too because he's like, you know, six four. He's a big, burly guy. So you see Rohit, go up, shake his hand. And tell him you like the podcast because I'm sure you'd like to hear that. Yeah. And ask him how his project's going. Ask him if he's yeah, exactly. worth a squeeze. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that'd be worth a check in down the road, I think. That'd be, that'd be that one for <laughs> yeah, sure. We're going to email yeah. angry emails from Rohan saying, Why do so many people keep asking me about this project? That <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the bane of my existence now. He's yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, we're wrong. Hopefully, it all works out. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.